Good morning, one and all. I invite you to turn with me once again to John chapter 15. This is where we were last Sunday. We made it halfway through the chapter, which means we still have half chapter to go. In John 15, let me begin briefly by, by setting the context just to, to remind us of where these verses fit into the overall thought flow of John's gospel account. Uh, John begins right back in chapter 1 with a wonderful description of the eternal Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, You put John 1, verses 1 through 18, together with Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1, and you have everything you could ever want to know, everything you could possibly know about the essential deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. So John gives us this beautiful prologue, this beautiful introduction to his gospel as he describes the essential deity of Christ. Then in verse 19 of chapter 1, he embarks on a description of the Lord Jesus' public ministry. goes all the way through to the end of chapter 12 focuses on seven signs performed by Christ, confirming whereby he confirmed his identity as the eternal word of God, as the eternal son of God. The signs culminated in his raising Lazarus from the dead. How did people respond? Well, the response is given to us in the introduction. Even before John describes Christ's public ministry, he gives us the response Christ came unto his own, and his own received him not. And so we see these seven signs, and what is the general response? Opposition and rejection. That is, in a nutshell, the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He performed his signs, he made his claims, and the world rejected him. Then in chapter 13, John shifts gears. He no longer has Christ's public ministry in view, but he has Christ's private ministry before him. The key verse, John 13, verse 1, the Lord Jesus came unto his own, right? His own received him not. That sums up the first section. But in John 13, verse 1, it's very different. There we read, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so the focus is no longer on Christ's claims and Christ's signs before a fallen world. The focus beginning in John 13, verse 1, all the way through to the end of chapter 17, is upon Christ's own, his people, his sheep, those whom the Father gave him before the foundation of the world. We've made it through John chapter 13. We've made it through John chapter 14. And last Sunday morning, we entered into the 15th chapter and we looked at the first 17 verses. And here the Lord Jesus begins with a metaphor, very simply. He talks about a vine dresser, God the Father. He speaks of a vine himself, the Lord Jesus. And he talks about these branches. There are true branches, there are false branches. The true branches are clean. The false branches are unclean. The true branches bear fruit. The false branches fail to bear fruit. The true branches are pruned by the vine dresser, the father, so that they produce even more fruit. 
But the, the, the false branches, those who are unclean, those who fail to bear fruit, they are removed by the vine dresser and cast away. And that's what we see take place basically in John chapter 13, isn't it? There the Lord Jesus makes a distinction between his clean disciples and his unclean disciples. He makes a clean, clean marks of, uh, clear marks of delineation between those disciples who are clean and Judas who is unclean. Those disciples who bear fruit and that disciple who fa- failed to bear fruit. Those disciples who will be pruned and will bear even more fruit. And that so-called disciple, that false disciple, that false follower, that false branch who is taken away and removed. That's the metaphor that we have at the outset of this chapter. And having given it, the Lord Jesus exhorts us to abide in Him, to trust in Him, to rest in Him, to look to Him, to make fellowship with Him, a communion with Him, our number one priority. And He gives us a number of motives. And I stated them last Sunday by way of questions. Do you want God to answer your prayers? Then you must abide in Christ. Do you want God to be glorified in you? Do you want to prove you're a Christian? Do you want to know God's love? Do you want to experience true joy? Do you want to love others? Do you want to be Christ's friend? Then you must abide in Christ. And out of those 17 verses, we took three principal lessons. We noted that the word fruit is used at least eight times. And so we took three lessons using this term fruit. The first was this. Fruit flows from union with Christ. The character of the vine is reproduced in those who are truly in union with him. Christ likeness. The second lesson, fruit proves the sincerity or insincerity of faith. And the third lesson was as follows. Fruit glorifies God. Fruit glorifies God. Now, all of this talk about fruit, all of this talk of Christ likeness, all of this talk of abiding in Christ raises an obvious question. Uh, The question is this. How would the world respond to someone like that? Uh, How would the world view someone who is truly Christ-like? What will the world think of someone who is, who is preoccupied with abiding in Christ? What, how will the world react to someone who manifests the fruit of which Christ speaks in the first 17 verses of John 15? Well, we find the answer to that question beginning in the 18th verse, all the way through to the end of the chapter. And I invite you to follow along as I read This portion of God's word for us. Again, beginning in John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, 
they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Pause there before we continue reading. Just pause there. In this verse, the Lord Jesus is not speaking of sin in general terms. He is not saying, hey, if I had not come and had not made my claims and had not performed these signs, then the Jews, those who rejected me, they would never be guilty of any sin whatsoever. No, he here he is specifically referring to their sin of having rejected him, of having rejected what the signs so obvious declare, obviously declare of having turned a deaf ear to his claims. This will become clear in John chapter 16, verse 9. But just so that there isn't any confusion, just important to pause now and grasp that again, he is not speaking about sin in general terms. He is referring specifically to their sin of having rejected him as the eternal word of God, as the son of God. Verse 23, whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. Again, again, the specific sin of rejecting him. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Indistinguishable, impossible to separate the son and the father. What you think of the son this morning is what you think of God the father. Impossible to divorce the two. Verse 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. Sound in the book of Psalms. David reflecting on his own experience. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. So again, let me repeat the question. You abide in Christ, praise God. You manifest Christ's likeness, thank God. Uh, there is fruit in you. Give God the glory. What will the world make of it? What will be the world's response? What will be the world's opinion of you? Let me state it simply, and all I'm doing is quoting Scripture this morning. The world will hate you. Hate you. Why? I'm so lovable. Cute and cuddly. Why? What is there to hate about me? Why would the world hate me? Well, let's begin, let's begin with why the world shouldn't hate us, and yet often does. I think that's a good starting point. Let me repeat that. It's a little tricky, that phrase. Let's begin with why the world shouldn't hate Christians, and yet often does. At times, the world hates Christians because of their activism. That's not what the Lord Jesus is talking about in these verses. Uh, Christians align themselves with a political party, rightly or wrongly. That's not the road I'm going down this morning, but we do. Christians do. At times, they, they align themselves with a special interest group or a certain political persuasion. And, and, and some of them, if they're not careful, what do they end up doing? They end up politicizing their faith. Their political position their political party, their political platform becomes part and parcel of the Christian faith. 
And they have so politicized the faith that they lose the, the ability, they lose the discernment to criticize their own political party or persuasion or position when it is so clearly wrong. And as a result, they're ridiculed. And as a result, the finger is pointed. And as a result, they experienced attack. But that Christian dare not cry, woe is me, I'm being persecuted. That is not persecution. That is not hatred for the cause of Christ. That is not hatred for the name of Christ. That is not hatred for being a Christian. That's just hatred for a failure to exercise good common sense and discernment. To call a spade a spade. To call true, true, false, false. Good, good, evil, evil. That's not what the Lord Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about those who politicize their faith, experience opposition, and therefore experience hatred. That's not the road he's going down here. Neither is the Lord Jesus talking about sin. Uh, The world at times hates Christians because of their sin. It shouldn't, but it does. At times the pastor runs off with his secretary. At times the important uh, evangelical figure is found double dipping in the collection plate. And ripping off the church or ripping off the organization. And the world has a heyday and begins to attack and begins to criticize. And the church's response could be, woe is us, here we go again. The world hating us and opposing us. That's not what the Lord Jesus is talking about. When we suffer for being sinners, we're getting exactly what we deserve. When we dishonor the name of Christ and carry on as unbelievers. And are criticized and experience opposition as a result. That's just the consequences of sin. That is not what Christ is talking about in these verses. And let me make it clear this morning as well that when the Lord Jesus talks about the world hating us, uh, we dare not confuse that with our own belligerence at times, which causes the world to hate us. At times we are, we are like that rhino in a china shop. Any way we move, we cause disaster, wreak havoc. Uh, every year back in Toronto... They have a, uh, a gay pride festival, parade, celebration. Uh, homosexuality is a sin. Do not misunderstand me. But it's no greater a sin than hypocrisy or of adultery or of thieving or, or of anything else. Uh, it, but it is a sin. A few years back, there were some, I almost said well-intentioned, but I don't think they were well-intentioned. Uh, believers who decided to go down to the great gay pride parade and rather than seeking to, yes, declare sin, declare God's saving grace, they decided simply to hold up these placards, God hates homosexuals. God hates homosexuals. Uh, They experienced tremendous hostility. Uh, The response was what you might expect. That is not what the Lord Jesus is talking about in these verses. That is simply suffering the response of belligerence. That is not being persecuted for Christ's sake. That's being persecuted for being an ignoramus. That's all that is. And we dare not confuse it. We dare not hide behind this banner of persecution. I'm following Christ. I'm doing this in Christ's name. When in actual fact we may simply be hiding. Simply hiding behind our own activism, our own sin, our own belligerence. Peter writes, let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in 
that name. So what does it look like? What does it look like to suffer as a Christian? Why should we expect the world to hate us? Why should we expect opposition and ridicule? What is a, what is a legitimate reason for, for persecution and for the world to direct its hatred toward us? Well, the Lord Jesus gives a threefold answer in the verses that we've read this morning. The first answer is found in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And so a legitimate, the first legitimate reason why the world hates us, Christians, is because, simply put, it hates Christ. Why does the world hate Christ? He tells us back in chapter 7, verse 7, listen, Listen carefully to these words. The world, the world hates me, says the Lord Jesus, because I testify about it, that its works are evil. That's why the world hates the Lord Jesus. The world hates the Lord Jesus because he is the light that has come into the world. He is the light that penetrates the darkness He is the light that shines on the the inner recesses of the soul and shows man his sin, reveals man to be exactly what he is. Man finds it repugnant. Man will not tolerate it. Man will not bear it. And so anything that shines the light on him and shows him, causes him, forces him to look in the mirror and acknowledge and see exactly what he is, that thing becomes the object of his animosity. Of, of, his, of his hostility, of his hatred. You see, as long as the world thinks the Lord Jesus is simply some sort of coach, they have no problem with him. As long as we present Jesus as a guidance counselor, the world has no problem with him. I don't know why I do it. I need help. The last night I watched the power hour, or is the hour of power, it wasn't Robert Schuler, it was his daughter, Sheila Schuler. Say that ten times fast. Fifteen, twenty minutes. No mention of heaven. No mention of hell. No mention of sin. No mention of the cross. No mention of scripture. Not even a mention of God. You see, Jesus as a coach, as a counselor, as a humanitarian, As someone to come alongside as a crutch, the world has no problem with that Jesus. But the moment the light of Christ shines into the darkness, as soon as the world hears what Christ has to say about it, as soon as people hear and understand what the Lord Jesus testifies concerning them of their utter and absolute sinfulness, of their desperate need for a penal substitutionary sacrifice, of their desperate need for poverty of spirit, for self-abnegation, for humility to humble oneself before the Lord Jesus, as soon as the world is faced with such a Christ, Christ, it stirs up in them, it wells up in them such hatred and animosity toward Christ. And here's the problem. 
if we live like Christ, bearing fruit, and if we proclaim Christ's message, and if we testify as Christ testified, and if we reflect the light as the moon reflects the sun's light, the rays from the sun, if we reflect Christ's likeness, we can expect, as Christ warns us there in verse 18, for the world to hate us. If, it's not if as in doubt, it's since. Since the world hates you. There's no doubt here. This isn't something that might potentially happen. No, this is what will happen. The world hates you. Know this, that it has hated me before it hated you. That's the first reason why the world hates us. Because it hates Christ. The second reason is found in verse 19. If you are of the world... The world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world loves its own. The world loves conformists. The world detests the nonconformist, nonconformity. When the world looks at itself, when people look at people, they want to see a mirror image of themselves. They want to be affirmed in their sin and in their selfishness and self-centeredness. But you see, God has chosen us out of the world. There's sovereign grace. There's the doctrine of election. Chosen us out of the world. We have become recipients of His grace. Saving grace. Transforming grace. Therefore, we are different From the world. And the world despises that which is different. R.C. Sproul tells of a time when Billy Graham played golf with President Gerald Ford, Jack Nicklaus, and another pro. Later, the pro complained to a friend that he didn't need to have Billy Graham cramming religion down his throat. He thereupon made for the driving range and took out his anger on a bucket of golf balls. When his friend followed and asked him, was Billy a little rough on you out there? The pro sighed and said with embarrassment, no, he didn't even mention religion. R.C. Sproul explains. Astonishingly, Billy Graham had said nothing about God, nothing about Jesus, nothing about religion. Yet the pro stomped away after the game, accusing Billy of trying to ram religion down his throat. What had happened? Simply this, the evangelist had so reflected Christ's likeness that his presence made the pro feel uncomfortable. Is that me? Is that you? Do we reflect the light to that extent? Is, is, is the fruit so evident in us in that kind of manner? When people see us, Do they see the Lord Jesus? Do they see Christ formed in us to such an extent that they recognize they're not part of this world? They belong to something else. They belong to someone else. And it heightens in them this this feeling whereby they're uncomfortable, reinforcing again what Christ says in this verse. Let me read it for you. If you were of the world. Let me ad lib. The world would have absolutely no problem with you. The world would embrace you, love you as its own. But because you are not 
of the world. But I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. And then continuing on in verses 20 and 21, the Lord Jesus gives a third reason why the world hates us. Verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because, here's the key clause, because they do not know him who sent me. So the world hates us, firstly, because it hates Christ. Uh, The world hates us, secondly, because Christ has chosen us out of the world and made us so different. And the world hates us, thirdly, because it does not know the Father. It does not know God. When we look out at the world that be, uh, we see the truth and reality of that. Uh, we, we, see, we see that it, it basically takes four, firm, four, four, four uh, categories, if you like. There are these, these, these four groups that, that the world falls into. And I don't think this is an oversimplification. I think, I think, I think experience bears this out. Now, firstly, as we, as we interact with the world, we discover that there are those who just completely reject God. Uh, that's known as secularism. Uh, they've bought into the Enlightenment, whereby God has, has been reduced to, to uh, something trivial, inconsequential, irrelevant. And so this is based in large part upon evolutionary theory. You have atheism, Gnosticism, all fall under this umbrella whereby there is no God. If there is a God, who cares? That's one category of people we we interact with in the world. Secondly, there are those who, who don't necessarily reject God outright, but what they do is they invent wrong ideas about God. And so they're monotheistic, meaning they believe in one God. Uh, they believe he's the creator. They believe he's the Lord, the king. They believe he's the judge. And so we see religions such as Judaism and, and Islam falling under this category. But you see, they have invented wrong ideas about God. Why? Because they have rejected the revelation of God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, to know God is to know Christ. To believe in God is to believe in God's name. What is his name? His name is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so a Jew might claim to believe in the one true living God. A Muslim might claim to believe in the one true living God. And they may appear to have some things right. They're monotheistic. Yes. Yes, God is the creator. Yes, we're all accountable to God. Yes, there is a heaven, there is a hell. And yet these religions in the final analysis are idolatrous. Why? Because they have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal word of God, who is the full and final revelation of God. And that's why the Lord Jesus can go on to say in these verses, verse 23, namely, whoever hates me hates my father also. And so the great three monotheistic religions of Islam, Judaism and Christianity are not three roads that lead to Rome. They're not three avenues that lead to salvation. 
They are not three streets which will inevitably lead to heaven. As long as you are faithful and diligent in that, that religious tradition in which you find yourself, well, we'll all reach heaven in the end. No. To reject Christ is to hate Christ. To hate Christ is to hate the Father. To reject Christ is to reject God the Father. To reject Christ is to reject God. To get your ideas wrong about God is in the final analysis to be guilty of idolatry. That category is out there. And we rub shoulders with people who are part of the world. You fall into that, that, that grouping all the time. But you see, there is a third category. It's those who confuse God with his works. And so they reject God as creator. Uh, they reject God as king. They reject God as transcendent. And what they try to do is they make God equal with the created order. And they go in one of two extremes. Some of them fall into pantheism and they say God is nature. Nature is God. Mother Earth and all of that. And then there are others who fall into polytheism. That there are many gods. The God of the moon. The God of the sun. The God of the sea. The God of the trees. The God of this. Spirit of this. Spirit of that. Spirit of this. And so they, 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 they have absolutely no right apprehension whatsoever concerning the one true living God. They have made him equivalent with the creation. And there's a fourth category that we find in the world. And it's simply this. It is those who outright worship demons. It's known as animism. We see it in Africa. We see it in parts of South America. We see it on the rise here in North America. Whereby all concept of a transcendent God is gone. Pantheism, polytheism, yeah, it might enter into it a little bit. But we see those religions where there is a blatant, open, outright worship of the demonic. Those are the four key belief systems that characterize the world. Now, here you go, Christian, walking out into the world. And you have the audacity to say, well, Christ says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That will engender one of two responses. There will only be one of two reactions. There are only two possibilities. If we're declaring the gospel faithfully, accurately, and if we are truly reflecting and mirroring the image of Christ there, there are only two options, two possibilities as we interact with those four different categories, the world. The first is this, there will be humility. That the Spirit of God will work in that individual. And as we declare Christ as the only way of salvation, as we proclaim the penal substitutionary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we declare that there is no other name under heaven by which man must, can, will be saved other than the name of Christ, that will, if the Spirit of God is working, produce humility, whereby that person sees their foolishness, sees their rebellion against God, sees their idolatry, sees their sinfulness. And it will cultivate in them that poverty of spirit that is so precious in God's sight. 
And from that poverty of spirit, there will be sorrow and a mourning for sin, a grieving over sin as having sinned against such a glorious God. And that will lead to meekness, whereby they will confess that anything short of hell is a mercy. That's meekness. Anything short of eternal damnation is a mercy. That's what it means to be meek. And it will stir in them a hungering and a thirsting after righteousness, whereby they will turn to the Lord Jesus, repenting of their sin, believing in him that they might find themselves clothed in the righteousness of Christ, a humble, believing, penitent sinner turning to Christ. That's one possible reaction. A second possible reaction is what? Absolute hostility and animosity. Who do you think you are? Oh, the world hates it. The world hates to be reminded of its sin. And the world hates and resents the absolute claims of Christ. And when we faithfully proclaim that message, when we faithfully declare that there is no other way to be saved under heaven other than the Lord Jesus Christ, and we declare it to the world, If the Spirit of God isn't working, we can expect the world to hate us. Why? Because it hates the Father. It hates God. And it resents anyone who challenges their own little belief system that they've created for themselves. Their own little delusional world in which they live. Anything that challenges their self-satisfaction and self-righteousness. Oh, they resent it. And the response is nothing short of animosity and hostility. That's why the world hates us, according to Christ. I hope you got those three reasons. Verse 18, it hates us because it hates Christ. Verse 19, it hates us because Christ has chosen us out of the world. Verses 20 and 21, it hates us because it does not know the Father. Leads to an obvious question, doesn't it? How should we respond? How should we as Christians, followers of Christ, respond when we experience the world's hatred? In three ways. Firstly, this is the starting point. We need to examine ourselves. We need to examine ourselves in the light of everything we've said this morning. Look with me again at verse 19. This, I trust you will give this some serious Attention, reflection, meditation. Verse 19. Extremely important verse. If you were of the world, how would it respond? The world will love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, how will the world respond? It will hate you. Only two possibilities there, right? I'm obviously not making anything up. It's very straightforward. You have two possibilities. If the, world hate, if the world loves you, what does it mean? Simply loving its own. It means I'm one of them. It means I'm of the world. But if the world hates me, what does it mean? I'm truly not of the world. I belong to Christ. Here's a question each of us needs to ask ourselves this morning. Does the world hate me? Um, is there anything in my life worth hating? Is there anything in me that engenders such an antagonistic response? If, if, I'm, if, if I'm at peace with the world, 
it can only mean, it can only possibly mean one thing. I'm of the world. It loves me. It has no problem with me. I don't remind it of Christ. I don't make it feel uncomfortable by that fruit and Christ likeness so evident in me. I don't faithfully proclaim the revelation that God has so clearly given in his word. There are only two possibilities. That where my life doesn't engender this response of which Christ speaks here, again, understand this isn't optional. This isn't something that might happen. This isn't something that could happen. This is a stark reality that Christ is describing for his disciples. The world hated me, and you can understand this. You can bank on this. It will hate you. When the world looks at me, does it see holiness? Does it see that I am truly clean? Born again, that the Spirit dwells within. I'm not asking, does the world see perfection? Of course the world doesn't see perfection. We'll never see perfection. But does the world at least see a penitent sinner? And does the world see someone who's occupied and, and, and whose chief desire is to grow in holiness? When the world looks at me, does it see faith? Does it see someone who believes in God and believes in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, lives accordingly? Make my decisions accordingly. Make my choices accordingly. My values, my thinking, my complete belief system. All that I do shaped by my faith in God and in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. When the world looks at me, does it see someone who's heavenly minded? Someone who's occupied with His great promise that Christ is coming again. I am dust. I will be worm's meat. This world will pass away. This world is passing. This world is trivial. Does it see someone whose greatest concern is for eternity? Does it see someone whose affections and values and decisions and choices are shaped by heavenly mindedness? As the world looks on, does it see someone who loves his brothers in Christ? By this, the world will know you are my disciples. The love you have for one another. Not some wishy-washy sentimental feeling. But a humble love, a love which expresses itself in action, a love which follows the example which Christ laid down for us so clearly in the 13th chapter when he laid aside his garments and began to wash his disciples' feet. Does the world see that kind of love in me? Does the world see peace? That peace which passes understanding. That peace which defies explanation. That peace which eludes the world's grasp as to behold that quietness of soul in me, one who trusts and rests in the inscrutable providence of God. As it looks at me, does it see fruit? A branch that truly abides in the vine. A branch that is one with Christ and bears fruit. That Christ-likeness, that fruit of the Spirit, so precious in God's sight. What does the world see when it looks at me? If it loves me, I know why. It's because I'm of the world. The world loves and adores and accepts and receives its own. If it hates me for the right reasons, I know why. 
It's because it hated my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The second response should be this. When the world hates us, we experience opposition, whatever the nature of that opposition. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised by it. Shouldn't be surprised. I mentioned some Sundays ago that I used to do a little roofing in my younger days. And uh, great years working for a, a Christian brother in the church where I grew up. He employed several of us young fellows during the summers. And on one particular occasion, we arrived at the job site and went up on the roof walking around. And imagine my surprise when I fell through the roof. Uh, the water had been seeping in and the roofing boards were rotten and I couldn't see it hidden under the shingles. Through I went, caught myself on the roof joists. Surprised, shocked, startled. Not as surprised as the homeowner. Cathedral ceiling underneath with his coffee and bagel as my ten and a half sized foot sneakers came through the ceiling and the drywall crashed around him. Surprised, shocked, startled by something we don't see coming. And how sad that is that when opposition arises, when hostility rears its ugly head, uh, when we're facing persecution, we're like deer caught in the headlights. Like, what's going on? What, what, how, can, how could this possibly be? This isn't normal. This isn't right. No, you see, brothers and sisters, the opposite is true. If there is no opposition, we should be surprised. If there is no animosity, we should be startled. If there is no hatred, we should be asking, why? And yet where there are these things, there should be no surprise on our part. Peter says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange. It's normal. Abel, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, John the Baptist, the Lord Jesus, Paul, Peter, all of the disciples experienced what? The hatred of the world. God himself prophesied that it would be so. First prophecy given back in Genesis chapter 3. I will put what? coziness, ease between the seed of the woman and the seed of serpent. I will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. What is enmity? Fancy word for hatred. And the enmity bursts forth, does it not, in Genesis chapter 4, where the seed of the serpent, Cain, murders the seed of the woman, Abel. And that has been the history of these two cities. That has been the history of these two people's groups right from the beginning to the present and will be until Christ returns in glory. Animosity, enmity between the followers of Christ and those who reject Christ. Do not be surprised. John Piper states, this is a hard lesson. I won't pretend to have learned it this morning, still learning it. Frustration is normal. Disappointment is normal. Sickness is normal. Conflict, persecution, danger, stress, they are all normal. The mindset, 
that moves away from these things will move away from reality and away from Christ. Golgotha was not a suburb of Jerusalem. And our third response is found in verses 26 and 27. We should take great comfort, great joy, great strength. Let me share this with you briefly. Our time is slipping away. Verses 26 and 27. It's the second time Christ gives this promise in the upper room discourse. But when the helper comes. Whom I will send to you from the father. The spirit of truth. Who proceeds from the father. He will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness. Because you have been with me from the beginning. We see that promise in action. In the opening chapters of Acts, don't we? Prior to Pentecost, prior to the baptism of the Spirit, this pouring forth of the Helper sent from the glorified Christ. Prior to that event, what had the disciples been like? On the night of Christ's betrayal, what were the disciples like? Where were the disciples? Nowhere to be seen. Gripped with fear. Overcome with anxiety. Peter himself denying his Lord and Savior three times. And yet after the baptism of the Spirit on Pentecost, those same men, what became of them? Peter and James preaching boldly. Peter and John preaching unapologetically. Peter thrown in prison time and time again. According to the records of church history, 11 of the 12 dying a martyr's death testifying to the resurrected, risen Lord, testifying to the truth of the gospel, sealing it with their blood. How do we explain such a transformation? How do we explain these, these men who fled on the night that Christ was betrayed and but a month later are declaring Christ to a world that, is, that hates them? There's the answer right there in verses 26 and 27. The fulfillment of this promise Christ promised to send the Helper. He hasn't reneged on the promise. The promise is as real for the believer today as it was in the opening chapters of Acts. The promise is as real for us today as it was for the martyrs who stood in the Roman Colosseum. The promise is as real for us today as the reformers who suffered terribly in the 15th, 16th centuries. The promise is as real for us today as it is for believers in China and Nepal and other countries where they're suffering horrendous persecution. The promise is the promise. Christ does not renege on his promise. He has bestowed the helper upon us to strengthen us, to give us wisdom when we experience this kind of hostility, to give us strength when we experience this kind of opposition. To enable us to proclaim the truth with love when we undergo this kind of hatred. Let me leave you with just a few questions. I was going to expand on these, but perhaps giving you the questions is sufficient in and of itself. Here's the first question I think we need to ask ourselves this morning. Am I of the world? There may very well be someone here this morning who is of the world. Uh, And Christ's message to you is so simple. Repent and believe on Him for the, salva- for the forgiveness of your sins and for the salvation of your soul. Understand who and what you are and understand that by nature this morning you are a child of wrath. 
with God's judgment hanging perilously, perilously over your head. And the cry of Scripture, the cry of the Spirit, the cry of the Son, the cry of the Father is unanimous. Repent and believe for the forgiveness of your sins. The second question we need to ask ourselves this morning is this. Do I understand that friendship with the world as a Christian is impossible? It's not even an option. To be a friend of the world is to be an unbeliever. To be a believer is to stand in direct opposition and antithetical relationship to the world. Do I understand that friendship with the world is impossible for the believer? Third question. Do I understand that conflict is normal? Nothing to be startled about. Nothing to be surprised at. It is the calling of the Christian. And lastly, do I understand that Christ has given me a wonderful helper? Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would take Uh, These verses, this portion of your word, the truths and lessons we've derived from it, and by your spirit, uh, apply them this morning. It is one thing to declare. It is one thing to teach. It is an entirely different matter for the spirit to take and grant understanding and help us to apply it to our hearts and live according to it. So that is our simple prayer this day. For your people here, we do pray that you would help us to abide in Christ, that you would make us more and more like him each and every day. And for the unbelievers in our midst, we pray that you would be merciful to them and by a work of sovereign grace might reveal yourself as the Lord and Almighty, that you might reveal the glory of your Son, that you might reveal to them the truth of your gospel. And you might bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ. This we ask and pray in his most blessed name. Amen.